0: 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Preston's going to read 24 through 27 for us. Do not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Let's pray together, church. Father, we pray as we look at your word uh, that you would focus our hearts and minds toward Christ. God, thank you for for David and and his example and that testimony that feeds in so well to to what we're looking at this morning. God, thank you for Preston and the way that he served with our students this last week and throughout the summer. And God, the way that you've used him uh, to impact so many people. God, thanks for the dads who are in the room. We know Father's Day comes with all kinds of different emotions and experiences. uh, But, God, for for Todd to be up here, for David to be up here, to think about the dads that uh, are seeking to lead their kids toward the Lord. God, thank you for the celebration of that today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thank you guys again. Appreciate that. I wanted you to hear, at the beginning of our sermon today, from a theologian named Herm Edwards. He's got a little video for us on the screen. Check out this little v- video from, uh, from Herm Edwards if we can get that up there. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello, you play to win the game. You don't play to just play it. That's the great thing about sports. You play to win. And I don't care if you don't have any wins. You go play to win. When you start telling me it doesn't matter, then retire. Get out. Because it matters. All right. You don't always think of Herman Edwards as a great theologian. But uh, how do we understand winning in relationship to our Christian life. Recently, I was reading uh, Phil Knight's biography. Phil Knight, the one who uh, founded the Nike company. In those early days before Nike, there was a company called Blue Ribbon uh, that Phil Knight was a part of, and they were starting to expand in the shoe industry, and they needed to get their name and their logo out there so they could begin shipping their new product. And They paid a girl $35 who was a beginning graphic artist to make the swoosh sign. Pretty good return on investment there. Uh, Here's a $35 check. We don't think this is very good, but we have to put these shoes to market, so we're just going to put that out there. Um, That's how the Nike swoosh uh, developed. And they'd come down to two names for Nike, uh, for the company that was going to replace Blue Ribbon. It was either going to be Falcon Or Dimension Six, which Phil Knight really wanted and his employees said was the worst name ever devised for for a company. The night before, the night before they were supposed to put these shoes into production, one of his co-founders had a dream. And in the dream remembered the medallion that World War II veterans would receive that had the goddess Nike on the front breaking a sword and came and said, we need to call our company Nike. They had no time to debate this as a company. It was either Falcon, Dimension 6, or the dream from the night before, Nike. At the last second, Phil Knight said, go with Nike. It's the best we have. We'll see if it works. It works <laughs> pretty well, obviously. Here's what I would want you to know, though. The word Nike is all over your New Testament. The word Nike is all over your New Testament. The word in the New Testament for overcoming or conquering or winning shows up around 30 times in the New Testament. But it's not just about how to win at life. It's in reference to the story of the gospel. So what I want to do this morning for you is I want to walk you through two passages of scripture. If you've got a bulletin on the back, you'll notice point one is 1 Corinthians nine. Point two is Revelation 12. And I want us to think about the idea of winning and competition in relation to the gospel in Christian life. What do we see in Scripture? What do we see in God's Word? Go back just a second to to those verses that, uh, that Preston read for us a second ago, specifically verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. I want you to hear from the beginning, and and David said this well in his testimony just now. I want you to hear from the beginning. Winning and competition are not bad things. In fact, a desire to win, uh, if you're not into sports, Maybe you want to destroy other people with your gardening skills or, you know, you really want to be the greatest uh, reader or the greatest sleeper, like you just all, you sleep better than all the other kids at school or whatever it is, you want to be the best at it. This idea of winning, hating to lose is actually a reflection of being created in the image of God, that God's plan for his world is for victory, now, now, we're going to have to trace out exactly what that looks like, obviously, so, so don't get too far ahead. But God is in favor of winning. God is in favor of, of victory, and we see that ultimately through Jesus Christ. But winning, competition, are, are not bad things. Even if you put your kids in one of those little uh, sports leagues that don't keep score, kids keep score. Like, uh, you pretend like they don't keep score. Oh, look, hey, we're not keeping score. Kids keep score. They know whether they know who won. They know They know what's going on here. This idea of Competition, you think about that framework we had last week, that temporary competition, this idea of competing in this world. It can be done to the glory of God. Not, not when it's ultimate, for sure, but, but competing, trying to succeed, can be done to the glory of God. It's good for others. You don't get any better if you don't try to win. Uh, those of you who grew up with siblings or neighbors in which you competed at everything— Part of how you get better is by simply competing with one another, saying we're going to make each other better. And competition brings joy. Competition is a way that we're able to say, I really gave myself to this. And so for just a second, I want to sidestep and also talk about for a moment this idea of success and winning and competition in relation to churches. Um, now, Now, obviously... We were joking about this earlier before the service, but, but obviously, we don't understand our place as a church in competition with other churches. You understand the danger of that, especially in a place like South Oklahoma City. We are so blessed with the relationships we have with other churches. So that, that's not what I'm, I'm talking about, but here's what I've seen over the years. Because in Christianity, our hope comes through the death of Jesus, and because Jesus says in order to gain your life, you actually have to lose it, and, and victory comes through being last, not first. Because that is there, sometimes we translate that into, well, we shouldn't really try hard. We shouldn't really give it our best. So you end up with lazy church staff, you end up with churches who coast and are in it for their comfort. You end up with people who aren't striving for excellence, aren't trying to constantly get feedback and get better. It's almost what it becomes, and here's, here's my caution to you, and this is my caution to us as a church. Sometimes we let the sins of apathy and sloth come in undercover because we say oh we don't want to get involved in competition we don't want to get involved in winning we don't want to get involved in success in the world we live in we have to be so careful because it's almost cool to pretend like you don't care Um, especially teenagers I know you guys have to fight this all the time you're cool if you pretend like you don't care it's dangerous to not care It's a dangerous mentality because what you find is you become apathetic about everything. You become lazy and slothful and nothing matters. What we're trying to see with competition this morning is things matter. And some things matter more than others. In competition, as we approach those things, doing our very best as Christians, we acknowledge that things matter. This world, this life matters, what God has called us to But some things matter more than others. So we're always facing this tension of, as a church, let us do things with excellence. Let us pursue success, and let us be very careful that we define that success correctly. Because before we realize what's happened, competition can quickly get twisted, can't it? And it leads to sin and it leads to brokenness. What does that look like? Verse 25 in your Bible. Verse 24 says, God's design for competition is good. Obtain it. Win the race. Run like you mean to win. Verse 25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. We're going to talk about that next week. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable Now, remember, this letter is written to the city of Corinth. And in this area, in in the ancient world, there were a set of sport games that took place very similar to the Olympics every other year. So these people knew competition. And if you won your competition, uh, I don't think they gave out participation trophies uh, in the ancient world. In fact, I don't even think they gave out second place. I think second place was first loser in the ancient world. But uh, if you won... If you won, you received a wreath, and these wreaths were made out of withered celery. So you work, and you train, and you beat up your body, and you're disciplined, and you compete, and you win the race, and you get a wreath of withered celery. You're like, oh my gosh, like I've gave, given everything this, this and this is, this is all I have, well, before we make fun of people who received withered celery uh, as, a, as a gift, we realize we're equally petty, right? Like, we work for things, we strive for things that are going to perish, that are going to go away. Those earthly rewards, that earthly popularity that, that doesn't ultimately survive. This is Sermon on the Mount language. Matthew chapter 6, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In the Christian life, and as a church, Emmaus, we have to be careful. And and let me just make it even more particular. As a church in South Oklahoma City, Moore, Norman, in 2018, we have to be careful that we are not striving for perishable rewards as a church. Because if we're not careful as the church of the 21st century, we end up changing the scorecard to match what we're doing well when that scorecard is not the one that God has given us to look at in in Scripture. And so we work and we strive for things that don't have ultimate value. What does have ultimate value? Well, the glory of God is never going to end. So worship given to Him is imperishable. That, That can never be taken away. The word of God will never fall. So lives committed to the word of God are given to an imperishable reward, something that will never be taken away. And the souls of people who will either be with God for eternity or separated from God for eternity, that's also imperishable. Eternity is imperishable. And so when we give ourselves to the mission of God, we're giving ourselves to something that truly matters. So what can we give ourselves to that really matters? Worship, discipleship, missions. Up, in, out. Those things are what God has called us to. The danger is when we start keeping score based on things that are ultimately going to pass away and that are not the things that God has called us to give ourselves to in in the first place. The other thing we have to be aware of is not fighting against the wrong enemy. I want to show you these verses on the screen. They come from Ephesians chapter 6, we, meant, we alluded to this a second ago. Ephesians chapter 6 says, Put on the, full, or the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. If we're not careful... We end up creating enemies out of those who scripture never says are our ultimate enemies. And we are so prone to this in the world in which we live. Probably, uh, this is bad preacher hyperbole, but uh, probably one of the biggest dangers we face in church world today is this idea of tribalism. And tribalism means here's my little group. And we're going to fight against this other little group over here because they don't believe the same as we do about point X. And we end up within the church, within Christianity, dividing ourselves up into subgroups and yelling at each other. And what we never do is tell people about Jesus. And worse yet, we end up creating these tribes or these subgroups and we yell at each other. And then we turn the culture or or people who are not followers of Jesus, we turn them into the enemy. So then we circle the wagons, and the people who are most in need of the good news of Jesus are made out to be our enemies. And you understand how we shoot ourselves in the foot so often, right? I don't mean to be overly negative, because we're going to turn the ship to the positive direction here in just a second. But just, just sense this. We have to make sure we know why we're trying to win, and we have to make sure we understand what winning really looks like. And there's such a danger that we would fight against each other instead of directing all of our focus against the enemy of people's souls so that then we could go to them with good news. What does that look like? This picture here from Ephesians 6 is reflected in the final book of the Bible in the book of Revelation. If you take your phone or, or if you have a hard copy in front of you, turn to the book of Revelation Revelation chapter twelve. The book of Revelation. The book of Revelation contains more references to Nike, uh, this idea of victory than any other book in, in the New Testament. So, so you're gonna find more references to conquering victory, this word Nike, you're gonna find more references to that in the book of Revelation. Uh, than, than any other place remembering for the hundredth time that it's the book of revelation singular not revelations plural it's the revelation of the victory of jesus christ it's against all odds when it looks like the enemy of god is going to win god's going to peel back the curtain and show you no 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 true victory was found in jesus christ that's what the book of revelation is trying to do Chapter 12 excuse me. Chapter twelve is at the heart of that. If you're trying to find the heart, so to speak, of the book of Revelation, you'll find it in chapter 12, verse 11, which we're going to get to in just a minute. But I want to start at the beginning of that chapter so you can kind of get the rundown of what's happening here. Chapter 12, verse 1 of Revelation. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven in verse 3. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child he might devour it. she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she was where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for one thousand two hundred sixty days. Okay you're not going to find this language on your on your sermon outline on the back of the bulletin, but if you want to write this down and it's helpful, here's the way this chapter works, so to speak. For verses one through six, you could write the words cultural contest. Cultural contest. Here's what's happening in verses one through six. In the ancient world, the story that these people would have known, there's the story of Zeus and Leto who are going to have a child, Apollo. And and Apollo is supposed to fight against and defeat Python. But Python is determined to come and and defeat Apollo. So Leto goes and Poseidon hides Leto on an island that's submerged under the water. And so, ultimately, Leto is able to give birth to Apollo, and Apollo comes out and defeats Python. People would have known this story. This is a story people would have been familiar with. Even to the point that in the Roman Empire, Apollo is replaced by the goddess Roma. So, Rome is going to be the power. The Roman emperor is going to have the power. It's a story about who's in control and who wins. When you look at Revelation 12, it is a story about who is in control and who wins. And in the ancient world, it was obvious to everyone that the Roman Empire was in control and the Roman Emperor would win. So why would you fight against him? Why why would you even try? Because obviously you know who's going to win. John comes along and receives a vision that is meant to embarrass this myth that the people had always believed in. And he says, whoa, 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 time out, time out. Your hope is not in Apollo. Your hope is in Jesus Christ. And let me tell you the way this story really works. And so he lays out for them this sign in verses one through six. Then go to verse seven. Watch where it goes now. It goes into heaven. So in verse seven, now you're gonna have a cosmic, C-O-S-M-I-C, a cosmic contest. First, you have a cultural contest. Who wins, the Roman Empire or the people of God? Secondly, verse seven, you have a cosmic, a, a universal. Who wins? Who wins in heaven? Now, war arose in heaven in verse seven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan. Just for a moment, remember devil and Satan. It's the word for accuser. The one who would accuse the people of God, saying, you're not free. You're not victorious. You're under sin. You're going to die. There's no hope. That accusation that comes. The deceiver. Accuser deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So a people who are in a minority, who are oppressed, to use David's illustration from earlier, they can't hit, they can't catch. Other than that, they're pretty good. Um, but uh, you know, they don't have a they don't chance. Like, there's, there's no reason that the Christians would win here, except that God says, you're going to win against the culture, you're going to win against the enemies of God there, and you've already won in the heavens. So verse 10, I heard a loud voice in heaven. Now we're going to get the triumph of victory here. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. This is victory in Christ. When you think Nike, in fact, kids, when you see a Nike swoosh on your shoes, or you see somebody at school wearing one, when you see the Nike emblem, think Revelation chapter 12. I know that, that's in the Bible, that's victory, and victory comes through Jesus Christ, that he is our hope, he is our salvation. Turn to no one else because in him, you find the salvation that you're looking for, and and better yet, there's no condemnation. Look at this next screen just for a second while we have time. Romans 8, one, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you have trusted in Christ, the enemy will try to accuse you, and the enemy will try to deceive you, but none of that can stand because you have a Savior who is in charge of the entire universe. John 16, Jesus said, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you're going to have trouble. You're going to have trouble. You're going to have tribulation, but take heart, I have nike the world. I have overcome the world. There's victory in Christ, and get this, Verse 11, victory in Christ becomes victory in the church. Look at verse 11. They have niked him. They have conquered him. How? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. You just saw right there the core of the book of Revelation. If you're a Bible underliner, a highlighter, Write this on your mirror at home. Better yet, set this deep in your heart. Our hope as a church is found in Revelation 12, 11. They've conquered him by the blood of the lamb. Church, our hope is not in any sort of effort that we would put forth. We are not going to win of our own strength. That's, that's what we're being told here. We win by the blood of the Lamb. Because of what Jesus has done for us and what he does through us, that's where our victory comes. And by the word of their testimony, confessing Jesus is the Lord. How do we win as the church? We win when we trust in the victory of Christ. And when we speak about that, when we confess that Jesus is Lord, there is power in your testimony. If you're not a member of Emmaus, I'll let you off the hook on this. If you are a member of Emmaus, here's what I want you to do this week. Every single one of us. Parents, you're going to have to help your kids with this. Every single one of us. You're going to do what Aaron and Tatum did maybe not particularly the baptism, though I I hope many of you will be led to be baptized if you've not done that. You're going to write out your testimony. You're going to write it out. What my life was like before I knew Christ. Now, if you came to salvation in Christ at age seven, I realize that, you know, it's a short period of time, but, but you're acknowledging that without Christ, you did not have hope, you did not have salvation. How I came to trust in Christ for salvation and how God has been at work in my life since then. You're going to go home, and you're going to write that out. And then, where it really gets tricky, you're going to share that with someone, which probably is going to be, you know, via email. That's a way you can send it out. Um, Email header, I just wanted to share my testimony with you. I've never done this before. Hit send. You send it to someone, and you share your testimony with this. Let me give you a warning, okay? And there's no fear involved in this warning. I just want you to know how to respond. You may get home, and you may try to write out your testimony, and you may get stuck. And you may get stuck for one of two reasons. Number one, you just need someone to guide you through that process. You're just like, "Ah, I I need someone to guide me through this. You may get stuck because you come to realize you have never truly trusted in Jesus for salvation. That your testimony was, I went to church and I tried to be a good person and man, I felt like a fake all this time. All that does is it drives you straight back to the blood of Jesus. I'm not going to be embarrassed by that. I'm not going to hide behind that. I'm going to go find somebody to talk to about that. If you can't write your testimony out, we're going to walk alongside you through that process. We conquer by the blood of the lamb, the word of our testimony, and look at the very end. We wrap up with this. They loved not their lives even unto death. We're going to proclaim Jesus with our words and we're going to display Jesus with our lives when we show that we are not trying to win the things of this world. We are showing that we do not love our lives even to the point of death. We'll give up everything we have in order to give ourselves fully to the Lord. Here's how we're going to wrap up this morning. After I pray, these guys are going to come back up, and they're going to lead us through a final song. It's a song you're probably not going to be familiar with at first, but they're going to lead you into it. We're going to stay seated at the beginning of the song, and we're going to pass the offering plates. So if you're helping with those offering plates, you're gonna stay, everyone's going to stay seated. We're going to pass those offering plates. And then about halfway through the song, Taylor's going to ask you to stand and sing. And we're going to worship together at the end of that song. And then you're going to go home, and sometime this week, you're going to write out your testimony you're going to send it to me. You're going to send it to a friend. You're going to send it to someone, and we're going to conquer. We're going to Nike, church, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. All right, let's pray together, and we're going to sing the final psalm before we're dismissed. God, thank you for this time together. The celebrations that we've seen of people taking steps of faith and obedience the way we've been able to sing together as your people. God, I pray that if there are people here this morning who are fighting against this idea of, have I trusted in Christ? Why haven't I been baptized? Why haven't I ever told anybody about this? God, give them a measure of freedom and courage like they've never known before. God, that they can come to you And say, Father, I'm in need of salvation. I need the courage to live this out.